2: The Chinese government was desperate. By 1809, pirates had taken over their shipping routes. Their trade deals were in jeopardy. Two Navy admirals committed suicide rather than face being captured by the pirate leader who had a stranglehold on the South China Sea, the one who controlled a fleet of 60,000 men, a crew at least twice as large as the Spanish Armada. Desperate times called for desperate measures, and the Chinese government asked the British and Portuguese navies for help to defeat the pirates. The Portuguese men of war, backed up by the Chinese Navy, rendezvoused on the ocean side of the island of Lantau, hoping to sneak up on the pirates. They tried to take them down with a cannon attack from the sea but couldn't get close enough. They edged onto the shore, hoping to corner the pirate ships. And then, from out of nowhere, the pirates came bearing down on the Portuguese, driving their ships directly into the Imperial fleet. The pirates never should have survived, but after a six-day battle, they hadn't lost a single ship. The Portuguese again tried to take them down with a cannon attack from the sea, but once again, their boats couldn't get close enough. The pirates escaped with the Portuguese hot on their heels. The men of war unleashed fire vessels, literal burning boats, after the pirates, hoping to blow them out of the water. But the pirate fleet managed to organize around the floating fire bombs, extinguish them and break them up for firewood. When the wind shifted, the pirates once again escaped. The most successful pirate of all time would continue her reign of terror on the Chinese government for another day. Yes, her reign of terror. iHeart Radio in Tribeca Studios. This is Fierce.
3: I can't type.
4: Yes, women workers do present problems, Joan. A
2: podcast about the incredible women who never made it in your history books, and the modern women carrying on their legacies today.
3: Here's to the ladies, the fair and the weak. I can't file. The women workers don't mind routine, repetitive work. Will you make a copy of this?
2: Naturally. Each week we're bringing you the story of a groundbreaking woman from the past who made huge contributions to the present, but whose name still isn't on the tips of our tongues, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because men wrote most of history. At the end of each episode, I'll be joined by a woman living today who's standing on the shoulders of this historical figure, whether she knows it or not. Today's story, Cheng Yi Sao, the greatest pirate the world has ever known. The pirate who reigned supreme over the Chinese government during the 19th century. Afterwards, we'll be talking to Tracy Edwards, a sailing captain who fought her way into the man's world of racing to skipper the first all-female crew to race around the world. But first, Cheng Yi Sao. In China during the 19th century, a woman's most important job, her only job in fact, was to get married and bear children for her husband. Hopefully boy children. Women had no direct access to money or to power unless they somehow obtained it through sex or marriage. It was at the end of the 18th century that a little girl with no name, or at any rate a name forgotten in history, was born on a floating village in the South China Sea near Guangdong Province. We don't know much about her early life. There are a few stories, but not that many written documents. We know her family probably belonged to the ethnic Tonka group. They were considered sea gypsies, a group of people treated as no better than slaves in the Chinese class system. She was likely poor and illiterate, which means she had almost no options except to marry early or find some way to support herself. The options for supporting herself were few and far between. And somehow the girl found herself working as a prostitute on a flower boat. The flower boats were like a floating entertainment village. Think of a cruise ship with illegal activities like gambling and prostitution. Even though she was likely illiterate, she was clearly smart. She found ways to gain small amounts of power and make extra money on the boat from a very early age. One story claims that the girl would extract money from clients by blackmailing them with secrets they divulged during their vulnerable time with the prostitutes on the flower boat. It was a strategy that won her money, power, and the small amount of respect that a prostitute could hope for at the time. One day, when this woman was about 26, a rich and powerful pirate named Cheng Yi came to visit the floating brothel. There are two versions of this story. In one, the pirate takes the woman captive, but overcome by the young woman's beauty, asks her to marry him on the spot. In the other, the pirate finds out about her side hustle extorting cash for secrets. He's impressed by her savvy and her brains, and then he asks her to be his wife. In both versions, this nameless girl saw an opportunity, not just a way out, but a way into something bigger. See, she wanted off that boat. She wanted more power than she'd ever get selling secrets. The Pirate King was smitten, whether by her beauty or her brains, and the girl knew it. She used that leverage to her advantage. So she said she'd marry him, but only if she got half his business, half his pirate hall, and an equal voice in running his pirating empire. As a 26-year-old newlywed, that nameless girl took on a derivation of her husband's name. History would remember her as Cheng Yi
5: Sao. She was not content to have a subordinate role to her husband.
2: That's Laura Sook Duncombe. She's a pirate storyteller, the author of two books Pirate Women, The Princesses, Prostitutes, and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas, and A Pirate's Life for She.
5: She wanted to be an equal business partner, and she wanted to rule their pirate empire by his side. And Cheng Yi allowed her to do so, probably because she was so good at it.
2: Now, there were other female pirates in the world prior to her. Some of my favorites are Anne Bonney and Mary Reed, the women who crewed with Calico Jack in 1720 in the Bahamas. Both of them were captured and sentenced to death. They escaped hanging when they were both found to be pregnant. But Cheng Yi Sao likely wouldn't have been aware of them, and they were never as powerful as she became. Over the next nine years, the young prostitute from the flower boat went on to become one of the most powerful pirates the world has ever seen. Piracy was a dominant force in the South China Sea, so much so that during the Qing Dynasty, the Chinese government didn't even consider the deep sea as a place belonging to them. It was a separate space entirely, and one to be feared. Cheng Yi and her contemporaries operated about a hundred years after what we typically consider the golden age of piracy in the West. The age of Blackbeard, Captain Morgan, Captain Kidd, and Calico Jack. All those men who plundered the Caribbean. Chinese pirates were a little different. Instead of operating in faraway colonies, they worked in direct proximity to the Chinese coast, terrorizing the Chinese government where they lived and worked upsetting many of their legitimate trade routes and wreaking havoc on the economy by plundering ships and coastal villages and towns for cash and commodities. The pirates were also thugs for hire. They often worked as privateers for the king of Vietnam to fight against the Chinese government. But until Yi Sao came along, the Chinese pirates were a ragtag bunch of opportunists. They had very little organization.
5: It's not even really a controversial opinion that she's the greatest pirate of all time. In her career, she was in command of somewhere between 40,000 and 60,000 pirates. And she had around 1,000 ships. Uh, You know, Blackbeard, in contrast, was active for two years. He had, at the most, around five ships. Her fleet was bigger than many of the legitimate navies of the time. She outclasses every other known pirate by every metric you would use to discover success, by orders of magnitude. There's just no comparison to what she did, to what any other pirate was able to accomplish.
2: Cheng Yi Sao wasn't like the other women on the South China Sea, the ones who were at the mercy of the men in their lives. She came on board as an equal. The men were at her mercy. She made sure of that. When Cheng Yi Sao came into her husband's operation, he had about 200 boats. That was impressive, but not impressive enough for her. She had plans to grow, to innovate, and she didn't want to waste time duking it out with the other pirates for the same booty. So, less than a year into her marriage, Cheng Yi Sao proposed something radical, something she'd learned in previous battles they'd fought together in Vietnam. She proposed cooperation.
5: Piracy up at this point was sort of, you know, every man for himself, every boat for himself. And they learned that when you work together, you are more of a force to be reckoned with. And so they started building their fleet. She was a magnificent manager. And under her guidance, the pirate fleet just grew by leaps and bounds and was able to become the successful force that no one was able to take down.
2: Here's what she proposed to the other pirates. You can steal all you want from Imperial China and the barbarian merchant ships. Just don't steal from the other pirates in our confederation. The same goes for battle. We fight the Chinese government. We don't fight each other. Next up, Cheng Yi Cao-tackled organization. Taking the bands of pirates from ragtag marauders to something closer to an actual navy. Cheng Yi Sao and Cheng Yi color-coded the squadrons. The Chengs took the red flag, which is how they became the feared red flag fleet. The other squadrons in the confederation, black, green, yellow, white, and blue, were able to remain somewhat autonomous, but they all kind of tied for second. Cheng Yi Sao and her husband crafted familial alliances through adoptions and marriages, making sure that each squadron's leader had some kind of family allegiance back to the Chengs. It was a system that would keep the Red Flag Fleet decidedly on top. And in the midst of it all, Cheng Yi Sao managed to give birth to two sons who she raised on her ships. Cooperation, structure, and organization paid off. Within the year, the Commander-in-Chief of the Guangdong Province, the coastal region the pirates terrorized, had been sacked. And his general, Old Tiger Huang, was dead. The pirates were firmly in control of the South China Sea, all because of Cheng Yi Sao. In 1807, Cheng Yi fell to his watery death during a terrible typhoon. Another story claims he was killed in a rebellion in Vietnam, but the details don't actually matter that much. Either way, at 32, Cheng Yi Sao was suddenly a widow. In Confucian culture, that meant one thing— widow chastity cheng yi sao was supposed to go into mourning and remain unmarried forever this would have meant giving up all her power and likely all of her wealth too everything she'd fought so hard for worked so hard for the deal she'd made with her husband when they first started out was for radical equality profits and power split right down the middle that deal died with cheng yi There's no reason to believe that anyone would hand over half the Red Fleet fortune and let her sail off into a life of virtuous chastity. Her life, the one she'd meticulously crafted for herself, could have been over. But she hadn't been a good Confucian wife to date. She wasn't going to start now. Instead, Cheng Yi Sao acted quickly, and with the opposite of chastity. There were plenty of relatives and lieutenants who could have claimed they were her husband's rightful heirs. Cheng Yi Sao decided to hand select the one who would make the best puppet for her to retain her power. Her best option was her husband's adopted son, Cheng Pao Sai. It was common practice back then to adopt lieutenants as heirs. It made them loyal to the family. This meant that Cheng Pao Sai had a legitimate claim to power if he wanted it. So Cheng Yi Sao decided it was worth her while to cement his loyalty to her. She seduced her husband's adopted son to keep him on her side, but also squarely under her. Her biographer, Dionne Murray, noted she seems to have acted in open defiance of Confucian behavioral norms. She was anything but a docile, submissive, and homebound wife. Within weeks, she had everything wrapped up. Cheng Yi Sao was the undisputed commander-in-chief of the Red Flag Fleet. That's when she went about making it the most dominant and successful pirate operation history had ever seen. Under Cheng Yi Sao's sole command, the Red Flag fleet continued to grow and thrive. At its height, the Red Flag was flown on 1,800 ships in the South China Sea. Cheng Yi Sao knew she needed to continue to unify her pirates, solidify her power. So, like Hammurabi and Genghis Khan before her, Cheng Yi Sao developed some codes. And like her fellow warlords, hers were brutal. Go offshore without asking? Lose your ears for not listening. Do it again? Instant death by beheading. Don't turn over your fleet's share of the booty? First time a beating, second time, your head. There were no trials for these offenses. The justice was immediate, right there on the deck. You just hoped the cutlass was sharp. That wasn't all she did. Cheng Yi Cao did something else that was completely revolutionary, something that was entirely unheard of. More on that after a quick break.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2%
2: you don't become more successful than Blackbeard without being a little bit brutal. And she had one final rule for them, something no male pirate had ever done before. She protected women. She outlawed all rape within her fleet. If a male pirate saw a female captive he liked, he had to marry her before he could touch her. Similarly, if a man mistreated his wife, neglected her, or otherwise harmed her in any way, he got his head cut off.
5: This is just not something we've seen any other pirate do before, and certainly uh, not since. So she is protecting women. It's orders of magnitude better than what they could expect if they were captured by other pirates in any other time of history.
2: Not all was rosy for the women captives. The wealthy ones were still often ransomed off, the poor ones were still sold to other pirates as wives. Cheng Yi Sao had thousands of ships working across the South China Sea. She couldn't be on all of them at once. It was her codes that did the work of making sure every ship had the same culture, the same laws, and the same respect for one woman, Cheng Yi Sao.
5: For it to work, she needed iron-clad obedience, and she was able to bring this about by her code.
2: There's one more rule that set the Red Flag Fleet up for total dominance. And it was another stroke of Cheng Yi Sao's genius. Eighty percent of every haul went to the house. Each ship's purser reported directly to her, and her accounting was exact and merciless. This created a kind of centralized bank that bolstered the pirates in bad times as well as good. It meant they didn't have to be reactionary anymore. Piracy prior to Cheng Yi Sao was opportunistic. It was all about whatever ship happened across your path. Or didn't. And that meant you were often hungry and poor and desperate. When pirate ships got too hungry or poor, they were prone to mutiny or taking on battles they couldn't win. This economic system allowed Cheng Yi Sao to keep all the ships equally well stocked and repaired, to keep her crew happy. Having money and security meant they could choose their battles. And when they planned their battles, they won. But she wanted even more. And so, she learned to diversify. She started a protection racket. Here's how it worked. Imagine you have a nice family fishing operation or a salt trade. You're regularly sailing between Macau and the deep waters of the South China Sea. You have two main problems. Typhoons and pirates. For a long time, you had no way of stopping either from destroying you. Cheng Yi Cao had a brilliant solution to the pirate problem. Fishermen and traders could come to her and buy themselves a protection card. Then, when a pirate stopped them and boarded their ship, they could simply pull out their card, say, I'm under your protection, and they'd be on their way. Caught without a card, the pirates would plunder the boat. Anyone foolish enough to resist was often brutally murdered.
5: The protection was a steady source of income because everyone's afraid of pirates in the whole South China Sea most of them are afraid of her. And so that dependable source of income was what allowed her to maintain her fleet. You know, you can imagine someone getting a little bit of power, um, you know, getting greedy and building their empire bigger than they can actually logistically maintain. But she had the foresight to realize it's going to take a lot of money to keep my massive empire afloat. It's a great myth that pirates bury treasure because they spent it as soon as they had it and sometimes before they had it. Uh, So this is another way in which Cheng Yi Sao is just thinking steps ahead and doing way better (laughs) than other pirates. She has the foresight to establish this steady stream of income so her pirates don't go hungry and her empire collapses.
2: Cheng Yi Sao's focus was the salt trade. Here, as everywhere, she was being strategic. Salt was in the top three tax exports for the Chinese government. It was a cash cow, and Cheng Yi Sao knew exactly how to attack every single piece of the supply chain. At the height of her power, she had 266 of the 270 ships in the Chinese salt trade under her protection. Cheng Yi Sao became the scourge of the Chinese government. They tried everything. At one point, they even moved every village inland by 10 miles to try to cut off the pirates' resources. But still, she remained undefeated.
5: In 1808, for example, she wipes out about half of the Chinese Navy. In one year, she's able to do that. Naval captains would commit suicide rather than be captured by her. So everyone is absolutely terrified of her and completely unable to stop her.
2: The government began calling her pirates the foam on the sea because they literally had the waters covered. Cheng Yi Sao, who at that point was a more powerful pirate than either Blackbeard or Captain Morgan, became known as the terror of the South China Seas. There's no doubt she was a strategic genius. She planned all the Red Flag Fleet's battles and they won nearly every battle. Their numbers were so big that even the few times they lost, there was another ship to sail. More pirates to add to their fight. So by 1809, only two years into Cheng Yi Sao's reign as commander in chief, China was on its knees. But then Cheng Yi Sao went and surprised everyone all over again. She did something else that her more famous male counterparts like Blackbeard and Captain Kidd couldn't or wouldn't do. She retired. See, Cheng Yi Sao had something most pirates lacked. Foresight and self-preservation. She'd had a good run. An amazing one. And she knew it. She had the foresight to see that the golden age of piracy couldn't last much longer. She wasn't defeated. Not even with three world powers conspired against her did she go down. But having to fight more was making the piracy less lucrative. She'd miraculously survived battle after battle but she wasn't sure she wanted to fight for the rest of her life.
5: You know, all good things come to an end. Nobody stays on top forever, and Yi Sao understands this. So she decides that she's going to get out while the getting's good, you know, while the Chinese government is still terrified of her. And like so many other things that she did, she had to write her own rules because no one had ever done it before.
2: On April 8th, 1810, Cheng Yi Sao entered the office of Pai Ling, the Chinese Governor-General. She was on foot. She was unarmed. And she brought with her just 17 women and children from her fleet. Imagine the contrast between the pirate tyrant who terrorized, brutalized, and murdered out on the open ocean for the past nine years, with this weaponless woman surrounded by innocence. Sheng Yi Cao knew how to put on a show. The government wanted her to surrender peacefully in return for a pardon. Now that would hardly be worth it, not after she'd worked so hard for all those years. She refused to leave until she got exactly what she wanted. She wanted to retain her fortune and 80 ships and 5,000 subordinates under her command. She wasn't just negotiating for herself. She was negotiating on behalf of her men too. She wanted the government to promise to provide a path to legitimacy for the men who'd worked under her, either within civil service or within the Chinese military, complete with government-financed pensions. Cheng Yi Sao refused to leave her people high and dry. Terrified of what she'd be able to do if she continued in piracy, the Chinese government conceded. They gave her everything she asked for, plus 40 extra ships to make her own foray into the salt trade legitimate.
5: Basically... The government is paying these pirates to go straight. So, you know, most pirates ended their career at the business end of a cannon or in the end of a noose. And these pirates get a government check when they retire. So if that doesn't demonstrate how incredibly successful and unprecedented Cheng Yi Sao's reign as a pirate queen was, I don't know what does.
2: She received amnesty for her family, great many of her crew, and she kept every last piece of silver she'd won. She was just 35. She had decades of the good life ahead of her.
5: Sources differ in how she lived out her retirement, but everyone agrees she made money of some kind. Some people said she opened up a brothel. Some people said that she started a casino. Some people say she lived a quiet life in the country. But she died at the age of 69 years old, one of the few pirates, certainly one of the few notorious pirates who was able to die of old age.
2: We're going to take a quick break here. When we get back, we'll have Tracy Edwards with us in the studio. She's the modern sailor who took on the patriarchy of the high seas. Cheng Yi Cao took on the patriarchy of both the Chinese government and the world of pirating in order to survive. She had to be successful in order to live her life the way she wanted to live it, with power and agency. She brought a decidedly female point of view to the Chinese seas, introducing cooperation and collaboration to complement her strategic genius, and at times, brutality. Nearly 200 years later, another woman took to the seas to infiltrate and conquer a world of men. Tracy Edwards was the captain and navigator of Maiden, the first sailing vessel with an all-female crew to race around the world. In order for Tracy to survive in competitive sailing, she had to prove she deserved to be taken seriously in a male-dominated industry. It was a feat that seemed impossible even as recently as the 1980s.
4: It's extraordinary, isn't it, that we are still having this conversation. It does all feel as if it's going round and round circles, doesn't it? My name is Tracy Edwards. I used to be a round the world sailor, and now I'm a social
2: activist. In 1989, Tracy skippered the first all female crew in the Whitbread Round the World Yacht Race. It's a grueling nine month challenge that takes place over 33,000 nautical miles. It involves sailing to the literal ends of the earth.
5: Welcome to the Solent, where we're only minutes away from one of the most spectacular sights
2: in sport the start of the Whitbread Round the World Race. A documentary, also called Maiden chronicles both Tracy's journey around the world and her battle for survival in a sport and industry mired in misogyny and sexism. We'll be playing some clips from Maiden throughout this interview.
5: There, the girls in Maiden, doing their best. They look like they're going through yet another spin. They're gonna change. They're trying as hard as they can. Five,
2: four. Tracy tried to break three. into the Whitbread race for the first time in 1985. At the time, there were only four women sailors participating on any of the 23 boats. Tracy had to fight to even get a place on a boat. And even then, she was offered the only job they thought a woman should have, the position of cook. But she took it.
4: So, you know, I did learn a lot. Um, I I absorbed information from them, and I thought I would love to do this again. But I'm a navigator, you know, and I don't want to cook again. So, you know, my mum always used to say to me, if you don't like the way the world looks, change it. Don't moan about it. So I thought, how do I change what this looks like? I wanted to be navigator on my own boat. And I thought the only way I can do that is to actually create my own project because no male crews ever going to let me do that. And it's really only in the last couple of years that women have sailed around the world on men's boats as navigators. So I was right. The second thing was the all-female crew bit because let's prove that women can do this. And I guess really the whole female empowerment thing and the way we ended up feeling about that was because we had so much anti-sentiment about us doing the race. So it went from being a selfish reason to do it to being, right, that's it, I want to fight for all the women of the world. And we all ended up feeling like that.
5: Well, it was an all-woman crew. Yes, I'm not surprised people were prepared to bet against them. There was nothing to show that they would... Ever be really acknowledged for anything other than failure.
2: What told you that you could be a leader on this boat, that you could lead this all female crew?
4: I guess I had no preconceived ideas, so I just kind of did it. And I just had the best team in the entire world who let me learn as I was going along. I mean, you would never be able to do that on a man's boat, ever. I mean, it was hard because the skipper and navigator are two very different roles. Um, Doing them both was interesting. So, yes, I was the skipper, but I mean, I did the navigation, then discussed with Dawn and Michelle what we would do about where we were going and how we were going to get there. And we would make a joint decision about tactics and the best course. Yeah, it was a real joint venture. Talk to me a little bit about organization of your
2: crew and what it
4: was like to sail with an all-female crew versus a mostly male crew. It's so different. It's not better or worse. For me, it was much better. You know, they listen. We communicate better. We look after each other. We respect each other. We talk a lot. Sometimes there'd be days on the guy's boat where no one would say anything. And I'd be like, (laughs) I find that really hard. We were a sisterhood and and there was a huge sense of responsibility for each other. You know, you'd always notice if someone was looking a little bit quiet or down, you know, go and put your arm around the shoulder. Cup of tea. (laughs) That'd be great. Thanks very much. That was brilliant. For me, I loved sailing with all-female crews. And I was well aware that people wouldn't be anxious to have us in the race, but I was not prepared for, you know, sort of the barrage of criticism and the the great comments like, you will die. You know, not, you might, or, you know, you might be taking a bit of a risk. Um, Also, my other favourite, from men, women don't get on. That's what we had the most of. More than you're not strong enough, you're not skilled enough, you'll, you know, you'll die or whatever else, the other things they said. It was... uh, a huge uphill battle but we did change minds so that was the the good part about it not
2: only did tracy's crew not die out there on the water they wildly exceeded everyone's ridiculously low expectations the race that year was divided into six different legs that meant that each boat had the chance to quote win a leg tracy's boat maiden ended up winning the most difficult leg of the race the one that traversed the bottom of the world
4: so when we set out on the second leg we were more than a little determined. And I think as well, you know, we'd had to fight so hard to be there that we were such a tight-knit, bonded team by that point. By the time we set off into the Southern Ocean, we were ready. It was a hard leg. You know, it's it's 7,800 miles, longest leg the Whitbread has ever had because of the apartheid in uh, South Africa. We couldn't go there because of the sanctions. So you pretty much go across the bottom of the world. So it was uh, six, nearly seven weeks at sea, uh, which is a long time and it's, you know, you've got conditions minus 20, minus 30 degrees below freezing, you're dodging icebergs, you've got this cold, you're constantly wet because salt water doesn't dry, so the clothing you're wearing feels damp all the time. So it's not for the faint hearted.
5: When you're doing 14
4: knots at night, that is a bit frightening. And then coming up out of the Southern Ocean, coming up towards land, it's an extraordinary thing because you, it's been wet and cold and dark and grey, and then suddenly you see a blue sky and sun and birds, and it gets warmer and you start drying stuff. And as you get closer to land, you can smell land. And there's always a competition to see who can see it first, you know. Everyone sitting there, eyes peeled, you know, I can see land. We didn't know we were in the lead at that point until we crossed the finishing line and people in the support boats who come out to see us were going, you're first. I thought they said you're third. I'm like, third again? I what? And it turns out we were first. And it was amazing, absolutely fantastic.
3: The first time in twelve years, a British boat has won a leg of the Whitbread round the world race
4: as they crossed the line the elation was obvious as the crew celebrated the victory many had said was impossible and soon afterwards they replaced maiden sails with the battle flag that summed up the spirit of female defiance the girls say their victory is a victory for all women sailors you're a woman you're told you have to look like this be like that you have to use this use that you can't have spots you can't have this you have to wear the right things Government
5: so know you spent twenty eight days, you don't know, have to wash, you don't know, have to dress
4: properly, you don't know, have to do your hair, it's great. We loved it.
5: What's the first thing you want to do? Get drunk. <laughs> Get drunk and eat a bacon
4: sandwich. <laughs> I have to say that coming into New Zealand, a lot more people did start to take us seriously. Bob Fisher, who had previously called us a tinful of tarts, decided that we were not just a tinful of tarts, we were a tinful of smart, fast tarts. <laughs> Better. Yeah, better, much better. Much better. But, you know, we had a little bit longer to get rid of the word tarts, but anyway. But he was one yossing journalist that really did go, wow, I was so wrong. Very few did. Very few yossing journalists. The guys on the race very much did wow, that was pretty amazing. And yeah, we underestimated you, which was good. But the questions at the press conferences, still exactly the same. So did you get on this leg? Oh, my God, almighty. N- never ask Guys, that. And we were actually the only crew that had stayed together the whole time. Everyone else had people coming and going. Oh, wow. So you were the same crew the the whole way round. The only other boat that did that was the boat that came first. We came second. So that's really proof of keeping a great team together and not having these rock stars come on and off the boat, which is what some of the other boats did.
2: After the race is over, you didn't die, you win two legs. Amazing. What were the attitudes like then? What doors did that open for the women who came after you?
4: So at the end of the race, we had this extraordinary welcome coming into Southampton. Hundreds of boats came out to see us, 50,000 people on the dock. I mean, we were instant celebrities. Uh, It was quite extraordinary and a little daunting, but we'd done what we set out to do. Maybe we hadn't won, but no one really seemed to care about that. We'd done so much better than anyone thought we would. So that was great. The legacy from Maiden is that we inspired a lot of women to get out there on the water. And there are some amazing women sailors out there at the moment. I mean, they are legendary. They're so good at what they do. So I'm very proud of that. You said
2: something in Maiden about being on the sea and doing this race. It gave you the sense of freedom. And you know, we saw that a lot in Cheng Sao's story, that she earned her freedom, her actual literal freedom by working on this boat and by leading this boat. What was freeing about it for you?
4: I love her story so much. I mean, I just love what she did. She was so smart, you know, and I'm just fascinated by it. And of course, I'm going, why haven't I heard about it? And why don't I know it? As so much of female history, I'm finding out now. But I did not know about Maiden. Look, so many people say to me, I didn't know about I Maiden. Did, I had no idea. So really not much has changed in 150 years. No. No. no, women are still being written out of history. Yes. You know, unless we scream and shout about it. And then we get called hysterical haridans. you know. We're hysterical. So, oh, always. Absolutely. And if I can link back to this amazing lady, I always feel when I'm out on the ocean that I'm seeing what every historical sailor before me saw. As long as we can't see land, you know, Columbus, everyone who sailed before me saw exactly what I'm seeing. That blows my mind. And I've never forgotten, I've never forgotten, sailing in through the harbor and going, I did that, I did that. Uh, excuse me, everyone, uh, I did that.
2: Thanks so much to Laura Suk Duncombe and Tracy Edwards for joining us on this odyssey. Don't forget to watch the documentary Maiden about Tracy Edwards' landmark sail around the world. And order Laura Suk Duncombe's latest book, A Pirate's Life for She, Swashbuckling Women Through the Ages.
3: Fierce is hosted and written by Joe Piazza, produced and directed by me, Anna Stumpf. Our executive producers are Joe Piazza, Nikki Etor, Anna Stumpf, and from Tribeca Studios, Leah Sarbib. This episode was edited and soundscaped by Julian Weller, with additional editing support from Aaron Kaufman. Our associate producer is Emily Marinoff. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Research by Lizzie Jacobs. The Fierce theme is by Hamilton Lighthouser and Anna Stumpf. Additional music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our very sincere thanks to Mangesh Hatikador for making this series possible. And to Nikki Etor, our co-executive producer, who literally moved mountains on a daily basis to make this all happen. We are very, very grateful to you. Sources for this episode, Pirate Women, The Princesses, Prostitutes, and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas by Laura Sukdunkum, And the article, One Woman's Rise to Power, Cheng Yi's Wife and the Pirates by Dion Murray, published by Bergen Books in the academic journal Historical Reflections in 1981. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
5: No one likes to talk about money.
2: Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? Now you can visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F a C
0: E T.com.
2: This ad is sponsored by facet. Facet wealth incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. This
0: is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment legal or tax advice
1: farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 acres farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2000 miles to reach your plate, but not 80 acres farms, their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. What's out there is unknown.
0: So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you've got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals, and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu.